last week we talked about the kind of fruit that Jesus wants to see growing in our lives. And can anybody remember what the three things we focused on were? The kind of fruit he wants to see in our lives? Number first one is... Starts with a P. Patience. I was, I was with the kids. I don't know. Patience could be described as the first is prayer. Prayers. Loving oh, others. Ooh, loving. Josue has his notes. Nice. This is, this is a, if I had like a sticker, I'd like give a top student here. <laughs> yeah. So prayer, loving others, and what was the third? Telling others. Uh, ooh, telling others about Jesus. Yeah. So those are the three things Jesus is talking about being the vine, us having a relationship with him. He says, um, if you remember these vines, they had the little clippy thing. <coughs> Our relationship with Jesus uh, is like a vine, it's like a branch's vine, relationship with a vine. Jesus is the vine, he's the one that's in the soil, getting the nutrients, giving life and producing um, life in the rest of the vine. And if the branch at any point, you know, imagine a branch had arms and it was holding onto the vine, if at any point it was like, you know what, I'm going to let go of this and do things on my own, it's going to die because now it's disconnected from its life source and it's no longer going to grow fruit if this had grapes on it or something. And so Jesus says, if you want to grow this fruit in your life, you want to be praying um, powerfully, if you want to be loving others like I've loved you, if you want to be telling others about me, you need to be connected to me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so that was what he talked about last week. And this week, the focus is on the last one of those. The end of last week's passage and this week's passage are very connected. This whole thing we've been going through in John 13, sorry, in John 13, it's all this conversation. So it's like, it doesn't, it's not like a uh, a class where Jesus is like, okay, we're going to move from one section to another. It's a conversation. His disciples are bringing things up. He's trying to give him final words of what it means to be connected with him. And what the focus this week is on telling others about Jesus or witnessing or evangelizing or sharing our faith. And when that topic comes up for me, um, there's often you know, a mix of three emotions or maybe one comes up more than another. It's usually excitement and fear and guilt. And how many of you would have one or all of those emotions when somebody starts saying, like, you need to tell others about Jesus? Excitement, fear, and guilt. And I feel excited because I know others need to know about Jesus. And it would be amazing to see somebody's uh, life changed by Jesus, by trusting in him. Like, imagine the miracle of somebody right before your eyes, um, God working in them for them to say, like, yes, I believe this guy that lived 2,000 years ago rose from the dead, is alive today, he's king of the world, I want to put my faith in him, and I want to trust him and surrender my life to him. That would be amazing. But then I also feel fear about bringing up the topic of bringing up the gospel or God or Jesus to anybody because well, how are they going to react? What if they get mad? What if they don't like it? Or what if they don't care? Or what if I do this whole spiel of, you know, I just explain to them for five minutes is what Jesus is all about, do you want to believe in him? And then they're just like, man, eh, that's not really for me. And it's like, oh, you know, it's just deflating. And for, <coughs> and because of that fear, um, then I feel guilt. And fear keeps us from doing it. So then I feel guilty that I'm not doing it. And for a long time in my life, my Christian life, I felt this burden to be telling others about Jesus. And when I was in high school, so I didn't know how to do it then, but I had you know friends that I was like, yeah, they're not really walking a great path, so I try to help them get closer to God. And then early days in college, I tried to do the same thing, and I worked at a nursing home when I was in college in the kitchen, and I had a conversation with some coworkers, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was trying to get them closer to God. And then when I was in college, I was given training on how to do it. I was taught how to present the gospel clearly. We used this little book, Would You Like to Know God Personally, 
It has four points on it. Um, and I was trained in how to do this. I had somebody trained me. I made little notes about things I could say, things to bring up, things to ask. And it was like, this is how you can clearly present the gospel to someone in, you know, like five minutes. And then ask them, like, do you want to believe in this? And so that was the first time I had training. And then during my time in college, I walked up to hundreds of complete strangers and talked to them about Jesus and spiritual conversations with them, whether it was uh, UW-Stevens Point, where I went to school, or whether it was uh, in Brazil, or France, or Panama City Beach when, at spring break when people were just wanting to party and not really think about school or God. Um, in all those situations, um, going and telling other people about Jesus. And as, it, as if that training wasn't enough, Spent three years in seminary learning more about the Bible, learning more about Jesus, more and learning answers to questions I didn't even know were questions that existed. And the reason I'm sharing all this isn't so that you're like, whoa, like, he must be really good. The reason I'm sharing this is because I'm living proof that more knowledge, more answers to questions, more experience, and more training does not take away the fear of other people. Still hasn't gone away still doesn't take away the fear. And sometimes we may think, like, if I just had, I just don't know what they're going to ask. You know, we have all these questions, these things we're afraid of, and it's like, if I just had more training so we might sit in more seminars or more workshops or more whatever it is and just know more, then I'll be ready. But, but the truth is we're never ready. It doesn't take away the fear of people. And since Katie and I moved to Woodstock, we met a lot of neighbors. And two years ago I started going to Starbucks a couple times a week to work, not as a barista, but you know, church things. Um, so I can meet people, and I've met a lot, and they know me, and I know them, and they ask me how Hudson's doing, and I show them pictures, and they you know, do, do special things for me sometimes that I don't expect. And we've had some over for dinner, we've had some over for parties, and when it comes to their spiritual beliefs, they're all over the place. A lot of them are ex-Catholics and want nothing to do with religion, and some of them are still Catholics, but they're not necessarily like have this relationship with God. That's not a diss on all Catholics, but some of them I know, it's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Catholic, and they might you know, pay their dues once in a while at Mass or whatever, but it's not a real thing for them. And some think they are Christians when they really aren't, and some want nothing to do with Jesus, and some have made up their own religion, and some are following a different religion. And needless <coughs> to say, there are a lot of people who need Jesus that I've met there, but despite all this training, all this experience, all this knowledge I have, I can still let fear of them keep me from mentioning the thing that I think is most important for them to know and is the most important to me. And I'm scared they won't like me. I'm scared they'll get mad at me. I'm scared they'll ask me difficult, uncomfortable questions. And some of them have done that. And I'm scared that they'll get upset and everyone will pause. You know, they'll, their voice will raise and everyone at Starbucks will just go silent. They're all just listening. How is he going to respond to this person, you know, berating him or being mad at him? And now I'll have all these other people to be afraid of and not just that person I'm talking to. I'm scared if that I talk about too much Jesus about Jesus, they're gonna to whisper to one another when I walk in. Oh, here's the crazy Jesus guy coming again. Don't bring up God, you know. <laughs> like what? You know, watch out, you know. And then people like kind of turn their back. Oh, oh, hey, oh, hey, Mitch, I didn't see you there. Like I'm afraid of those things happening. They're like real fears. And as I said, I'm telling you all this because I'm living proof that more knowledge, more answers, more training doesn't take away the fear of other people. So those things I mentioned have. Any of you have been scared of those things in, in your life? Or maybe you have a whole other thing. Do any of you have people in your life that you're like, I really wish they knew God, but you've been too scared to tell them about it, or you have other reasons? And so we're going to make a little list. What keeps us from telling others about Jesus? But I want to do it from the perspective of, what are we afraid of losing? If I talk to this person about Jesus, and I don't do it, 
what are we afraid of losing? What are, what's the fear of what we're going to lose there? Does that make sense? What are we afraid of losing that keeps us from telling people about Jesus? Friendship. Friendship? Maybe in particular, like, the openness that you have in friendship or vulnerability. Maybe that'll sort of get, like, cut off or stopped. Or they might, they might be like, you know, like, I want them to, like, talk to me about that. I don't, that's not what I want to do. And they kind of shuffle past you. They used to open up about, mm-hmm. how are you doing? And, and they'd like, be, like, no, not like, fine. Yeah. yeah. Openness, um, vulnerability in relationship. Mm-hmm. Anything else? What are we afraid of losing <coughs> when we tell people that Jesus that keeps us from doing it? I've been afraid of losing a job. There's, there's mm-hmm. places where you work that you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. What if my boss hears about it? What if I get reported? The HR gets brought into the picture. Yeah, whatever it is, losing a job. Which could mean a whole lot of other losses. Car, house, you know, what? But any lots of things. So we can expand that out, you know, which could lead to losing your house, car, everything materially you could lose, yeah. Anything else we're afraid of losing? It's like time, which more in like the sense of like knowing that investment in an investment in, you know, it takes time to actually share about Jesus. It's not like, oh, hey, there's this, this, this guy that died on the cross. You should know him. Check you later. You know, so like, there's a selfishness that I encounter with myself of like, that I want my time. And that's going to take a lot of time. So the time, can I lose time? Um, that I want to be doing other things. Like, yeah. me time, you know. Yeah, it's like I don't, I don't have time for that. That's kind of which yeah, is kind of like, like busy. if we well, we'll come back to that. Yeah, so me time or uh, free time we could call it maybe free time. Like uh, I don't want to hang out, invest in that relationship because I just want to watch Netflix, whatever it is. That's, I don't know if that's what you do. That's what I do. I was trying to think like a territory. I mean, the idea that, you know, if it really became uncomfortable for you to be at Starbucks or something, like you were saying, mm-hmm. that you would never go there again. Mm-hmm. And so you would lose an access to a place that you would normally mm-hmm. want to. So you're limiting your access to different places or the possibility that you can't go to somewhere because you know that there's going to be, you know, resistance or uncomfortability or something like that. So you... Well, so I was thinking maybe the word is comfort because... I used to walk in there and it's like, ooh, everyone likes me. And now it's like people feel uncomfortable and I feel uncomfortable. Maybe that would be. There's comfort within it, yeah. Comfort. Anything else? Comfort kind of connects to like openness and vulnerability and friendship. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um. Yeah, all these people were, you know, like talking to me and now they don't like talking to me. Or, you know, whoever it is, your neighbor, your coworker, friend, family member, like, like, oh, we talked fine about <coughs> the Blackhawks or the Bears or whatever, and now I brought up God, and now they're kind of like, 
eh, okay, you know, <laughs> quick shovel the driveway, let's get inside. <laughs> well, it's being it's liked. Losing uh, like, likeability. Um, so being liked. Liked, accepted. Very good at what were you going to say, I was trying to turn it into a catching of likability, but then, uh, but yeah, what, you're like what, kind of what I was also it, kind of within what I was saying is too. It's like when I was young and I had a paper out and there was kids that would harass me or whatever. I mean, I would not go mm -hmm. where they were, kind yep. of thing, and stuff like that. So, you know, I would have to kind of change or go around, you know, just for my own sake of being, um, you know, feeling safe or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't think that we've faced yet people who are actually you know, physically going to harm us, but you know, within that comfort, if I feel uncomfortable going somewhere, it's like, I'd rather not go there, kind mm -hmm. of thing, so. Yeah, you kind of avoid it, or yeah. like, oh, I used to go there, that was nice, but not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's probably more we could write. It's interesting, I'll come back to it later, never mind. I'll write right on here. So I remember, if I don't look back here, I won't, uh, Yes. Four, every every seven. every every five minutes, just shout one of those out, and then I'll be like, "Huh? Oh, yeah, right." So now the question is, wouldn't it be great if we were no longer scared anymore? If in our interactions with people about Jesus, um, that instead of having fear and the guilt, that we weren't scared anymore, and in fact, this fear. The guilt were replaced with joy and peace and courage. And this week, as we're continuing this final words for following Jesus in the last chapters of John, uh, Jesus is preparing them. Uh, he's continuing on this conversation where he just told them, if you love me, the world is going to hate you. Which is like, I mean, let that sink in. Like, uh, and he's told them, I'm going away. The world's going to hate you but I still want you to tell the world about me. Uh, oh, and the world hates you because they hate me, but I still want you to tell them about me. And this is, what, this is the bomb he drops on them and that we saw um, last week. And so uh, you can imagine the disciples, or maybe we would say, okay, so let me get this straight. You're leaving. We're already sad about that, that you're leaving. But not only this, the world is going to hate us because it hates you. And on top of that, you want us to tell people about you who hate you. Like, cool. Uh, there's a lot of reason to be afraid. Yeah, if that's the, yeah, that, hello. <laughs> this is great, guys. Uh, but if that's, if that's everything that's true about the situation, like, of course we should be afraid. Like, that's horrible. Uh, and we feel the same way. We can be afraid. And Jesus wants us to spread this good news about him in a world that hates him and therefore hates us because we love him. But Jesus has more to say on the matter. And so, this is the big idea that summarizes today's passage. It's this. Jesus sends this... Ooh, I have a thing. Jesus puts his spirit in us to continue his mission through us. Jesus puts his spirit in us to continue his mission through us. And this is the word. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. He's like, I'm leaving the world's going to hate you, but I want you to tell them about me. Um, we saw last week, he said, the Spirit's going to bear witness, and you're also going to bear witness. In some ways, the Spirit bears witness in us um, so that he, 
can bear witness through us. He tells us what, who Jesus is and what he's all about. It's really true. And then we get to tell other people, this is what Jesus is about. This is what he did. And it's really true. And so it's the spirit gets put into us. So Jesus can continue his mission through us. And this passage is all about comforting and encouraging. Jesus has already been assuring his disciples, like, I know I'm saying I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And now he's coming back to that topic after telling them, the world's going to hate you if you love me. And so in verse 6 of chapter 16, Jesus acknowledges, he sees they're sad, and it's understandable. He's leaving them, and he says, I want you to keep living for you and tell others about me, but the world's going to hate you. And that's understandable that they're sad and they're feeling pretty bummed. Um, but look at Jesus' perspective on his departure in verse 7, which may be surprising. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And it would, the word helper he uses for the spirit here, in verse 7, we talked about it, I think, two times ago. Um, that it, the Greek word is parakletos, which I don't normally throw around Greek words, but some of the actual English versions um, keep the Greek word as how they translate it, as paraklete. You may have heard that before. Other versions translate it as counselor or advocate um, or comforter. This version does helper. But the reason there's so many different translations of that one word is because it's hard to capture it, its full meaning in one word. And helper it gets at because paraklete <coughs> means one who comes alongside you. Um, or one who comes to your aid. And so helper, you know, one who comes to your aid, a helper, one who comes alongside you. And Jesus, um, back in chapter 14, called the Spirit another paraclete, another one coming alongside you. And the implication is that Jesus was the first one who came alongside them, and now another one who comes alongside you, I'm going to send him to you. In the same way that I've been alongside you physically, the Spirit's going to be alongside you, actually in you, um, spiritually. And Jesus says, my departure is, is to your advantage, which means it's to our advantage too. And it's easy to think, I'm like, man, wouldn't it be so much easier to follow Jesus if he was right here with us, talking to us, telling us what to do, guiding us, helping us out. Um, and Jesus says, no, actually it's to my advantage, to your advantage that I left. And that may sound odd to us. But last week, I used the image of a sponge uh, to talk about our relationship with, what our relationship with Jesus is like. And it's a way to think about the vine and the branches because um, the sponge can't create water um, and because it can't create water it can't give water on its own it needs a water source it can only receive water and then give out what it's been given and so in the same way the vine can't create fruit the branch can't create fruit on its own it needs to be connected to the vine and it's connected to the life source and then it can actually bear fruit and now you can you can see uh, this well this the disciples obviously <coughs> because they're like, what are you talking about? Um, but this image can be used to describe Jesus' relationship with the Father as well, that Jesus, um, well, the disciples have been with him, and they have come to believe, wow, you really are from God. Here's this guy, the water is the presence of God, and Jesus is this guy that is just completely soaked in God's presence. It's like he just seems so completely in tune with who God is, and what God is about, what God wants him to do, what God desires for him, what God's will is. He seems to be able to answer people when they're upset with him. He seems to be able to just always do the right thing in every situation. And now these guys, here's the disciples, 
Maybe these are us. Too bad I don't have another chair. But imagine these guys, they've been hanging around them. They're, okay, we've become disciples of you, Jesus, because we can see that you are soaked with the presence of God. And then Jesus is like, I need to, I'm going to go, and you guys are going to continue doing the things I've done. And they're all like, but you're the one who's soaked with the presence of God. We've been following you around watching you do this, and there's been a couple little glimpses of you letting us going and casting out demons and healing people, and that was cool, but we really need you. We need to be connected with you. We need you around Jesus. And so they're thinking, okay, all this is going away, and now it's just you know us dry sponges trying to tell people about Jesus, trying to do the things that Jesus did. It's like, we aren't soaked like you, Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away, because, okay, imagine that's a disciple now. But Jesus goes away, and he says, the only way that the helper will come, the only way the paraclete will come, the only way the Holy Spirit will come, what enables him to come is me dying your death in your place for your sins. I take your penalty, and that makes it so you can be a temple of God. So you can be, he didn't say this, here, he's going to, it becomes clear to them later, but he, he does say, I need, if I don't go, the paraclete won't come. And so his going is him dying and being resurrected, going to the Father, and now that opens up um, the possibility for the Spirit to be in us. And so instead of a bunch of you know, dry sponges or whatever, hanging around Jesus, watching him do sweet things, Jesus says, no, the same Spirit that's in me, I'm now sending so it can be in you. And so now instead of just this one person, you know, you get the image here. It's, can't fit them all. <laughs> but, so now instead of, it would be better if I had three more bowls so each person had their own little bowl. But you get the picture. Instead of one person, Jesus, being soaked with the Spirit, he's saying it's better for me to go because if I go, now I can soak all of you. You can all be soaked with the Spirit. You can all have the Spirit inside you. You can take the soap sponge and squeeze it on the other one so it's actually like the Spirit. That's, that's true. We'll do it later, Brian. Together, it'll be a, be a little project for us together. But Jesus, when we looked at Jesus, they see in him the presence of God. And they saw in him the spirit of joy, joyful obedience to the Father, the spirit of peace. Like Everything's going to be fine. Like, I'm not worried about these people angry at me. He saw the spirit of courage. didn't matter what people. He walked into the temple and undid all the things that were going on there and said, this is all wrong. And he had this courage, even in the face of a world that hated his message. And he's saying, that same spirit that was in me, that was guiding me, empowering me, I'm sending that spirit to soak you and to soak your lives as well. And that's why the big idea for our passage is Jesus sends or puts the spirit in us to continue his mission through us. That's the reason we're given the spirit is so Jesus can continue working. And if you... Uh, the act, if you read the book, beginning of the book of Acts, which is about the early church, it said, uh, oh, in my first volume, I talked about all the, all the things Jesus began to do. In <coughs> Acts 2, you see all these people get saved, and it says, and the Lord added to the, the church day by day that people were being saved. And so there's a thing, Jesus is doing it through us. He uses us, and he has his spirit in us. And we're told the spirit will do one action, uh, but he'll do it in three different areas. And his one action he does in this translation is convict. Um, or another way you could say it is he's going to expose. He's going to convict the world or expose the world or shine light into the world or onto the world. And the world, in this book, doesn't just mean like the globe, um, the earth, the physical earth. And it doesn't just mean, oh, all the people in it. It's like the world system that opposes God. Uh, the world system that hates God, that hates what he wants to do. 
And this conviction or exposure that the Spirit is going to do is going to happen in three areas. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you went back and read the beginning of the Gospel according to John, you would see Jesus doing all three of these. um, Convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So first, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in Jesus. Why? Where there's no belief in Jesus, there's still condemnation for sin. There still is a need for somebody to be shown how sinful they are. And our natural thing, if we remember back in Genesis, when we went all the way to the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, 3, the serpents, does anybody remember the serpent's essential lie that he tells to Adam and Eve? Your sin isn't? Trailing voice. Uh, your sin isn't that bad, and God isn't that good. Josue with a wasn't quite confident there, but that's okay. Sin isn't that bad, and God isn't that good. And so the essential lie the serpent has got us believing is, you know what, my sin isn't really that bad. Like I'm not that bad of a guy. Like the things I do, like there's people way worse than me. And there's always somebody worse than somebody. <laughs> you know, you just keep going and going and going and going. I'm not as bad as that guy. Then what does that guy say? Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. What does that guy say? Well, I'm not as bad as you know somebody somebody else. And so our the essential thing we believe is our sin isn't that bad, and therefore we people don't turn to Jesus. And the just wrath of God remains on anyone who rejects Jesus as their king. Secondly, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness, because Jesus is returning to the Father. So it's sin, and then righteousness. And this one is. It has like this ironic twist to it. By the way, I mean this verse, these two verses are like super packed. So when you read people, what they think these three things mean, um, it's just like, you know, this is a bunch of stuff squashed into like a couple words. <coughs> super condensed. And so people have varying opinions on these. So you could go and read somebody and they might have, say something different than this, which is okay. Um, but Jesus is returning to the Father. Uh, but while he was on earth, I mean, Remember when he went to the temple, he turns over all the, the money tables. And he's, the whole time he has all these confrontations with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, it's like those are like the most righteous people of all. These are the people that have dedicated their lives to following the law of God, to keeping all the minute details. They've even, they don't just have the law of God, um, so the first five books of the Bible. They don't just have that, but they've actually created laws around those laws to keep them from breaking those laws. It's like, let's create a little padding here to make sure we don't even get close to breaking the laws of God. They had all these other extra rules and laws. But think how, how ironic it is, how sad, that they're doing all this in the name of God. They're doing all this to worship God. Then the God that they're worshiping in their temple shows up, and what do they do? They reject him, and they kill him. So how righteous are they? I mean, it's really this hypocritical, bankrupt, empty righteousness. Like, how can they be righteous people if the God that they're trying to be righteous for shows up and they reject them on the basis of their own laws, on the basis, and they say, like, in the name of God, we're rejecting you as the Son of God, even though he really is the Son of God. And so they're shown, Jesus was showing them and how they were rejecting him that their righteousness was misguided and it's more self-centered than they realize. And Jesus' return to the glory at his father's side, shows just how bogus the world's righteousness is because they were so wrong about Jesus. 
You know, it's kind of sometimes people ask, like, if Jesus showed up at your worship gathering, would anybody like him? You know, that's what that's what we have to really ask ourselves. If Jesus showed up in our life, would we be like, yeah, this is the guy I've been following? Or would he show up and we'd be like, hey, you're kind of like stepping on our toes here. We got like a certain thing going on of how we do things, and this is how my life is, and this is how we worship God, and so we don't really want you coming in here messing with all that. That's basically what happens. He comes into their worship gathering, he's like, you guys are doing it all wrong, you're corrupt, and they're like, ew, you know, uh, no, you're not going to mess around with our system here. And lastly, the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment, he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. As we, the ruler of this world, the world system that opposes God is Satan, the ancient serpent from Genesis 3. And his method of opposing God is through lies. And under his deceptive guidance, the world rejected Jesus. And in John 18 and 19, we'll see that Jesus goes to trial. He, the verdict he gets is guilty, and then he's killed. And the world, and even the religious leaders that were supposed to be waiting for Jesus to come, went along with the rule of this world in pronouncing a guilty verdict on Jesus. But when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it shows just how wrong the world's judgments are. It shows just how wrong the serpent's lies are, because that's what he's doing. He's lying. The resurrection proves that Jesus was a lying, but the ruler of this world is, is lying. He's judged as a liar. Jesus' resurrection shows how faulty and wrong the judgments of the world are. And so Jesus came to expose the sinfulness of the world, the false righteousness of the world, and the lies of Satan. If you want to put it, uh, maybe a statement for each one. For sin, he came to show uh, you're more sinful than you know. Because often we think we're less sinful uh, than God says we are. Like, ah, not that bad. Like, God gets kind of uptight in the Bible. Why is he always talking about sin and judgment? It's because we're, we don't take our sin seriously. So he tells the world, you're more sinful than you know. And righteousness it's your, you're less righteous than you think. Religious leaders thought they had it all together. And so often the world and people in our world and us, all of us, before we trust in Jesus, we thought, you know, I'm not that sinful. I'm pretty righteous. I'm a good guy. And what the Spirit does through it in another person and in us is to show us you know, you're more sinful than you know and you're less righteous than you think. And then lastly, judgment. Um, the Spirit says Jesus is who he said he was. So he sheds light on the lies of the evil one, of the serpent. And really, really what all this is doing is that the spirit offers a diagnosis. If you think about doctor's offices, the spirit's offering a diagnosis. The spirit doesn't apply a cure to the world unless somebody is saying, like, yes, I want this. Yes, I want to believe in Jesus. The only way we'll accept a cure is if we have the diagnosis that something is wrong. And so the spirit is coming and saying, you're more sinful than you know. You're less righteous than you think. And therefore, you're worse off than you can even imagine. But Jesus is who he said he was. And that's what the Spirit is trying to do. There's that diagnosis piece of, like, there's something wrong with you. And then there's pushing away the cloud uh, and the lies of Satan to see, this is, Jesus really is who he said he was. Look, he was resurrected. He proved himself to be right. That's what the Spirit is trying to do. And the, Jesus, I mean, this is like, Jesus was doing it out of love. The words convict and expose can be like, ooh, I don't like those words. I don't want to do those to people. Um, Jesus puts the Spirit in us so we can do the same thing he did for people. But if you remember John 3.16, what is it? For God so hated the world, so loved the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why he's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
And then he, Jesus even says, I'm laying down my life for the sheep, for people who would trust in me. And Jesus even says, um, I think it's in John 3, a little later, he says that, um, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. So God in love sends Jesus to convict the world, to expose um, sin, righteousness, and judgment in order to save it. But for people who don't think anything's wrong with them, or don't want to hear that something's wrong with them, telling them there is something wrong with them can get you killed. And I got Jesus killed. Um, he opposed the world system, and the world system and Satan attacked him and killed him. So Jesus, as he moves into John, into verses 16 through 24, um, all of those things he's talking about, he's like, the Spirit's going to come, and this is what he's going to do through you. I'm putting him in you, so you can continue what I've been doing in the world. You're going to diagnose the world, help them to see that they're worse off than they think, and so they'll turn to me. That's what he's doing through us. But all that's future. And he's convinced, he was convinced in the world of these things, but the decisive event of his death and resurrection is yet to come. But in verse 16 to 24, he gives this illustration. Um, the disciples are confused. Because he keeps saying, like, I'm going away, but I'll see you in a little while. And they're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I don't get what he's saying. How is he going away? How is he going to the Father? How are we going to see him again? You know, they just, there's no categories for this, which is, I think this little conversation just proves. I mean, John, he was there for this conversation. Um, and then he wrote it down, like, if you're trying to, like, form a religion that people would find believable, you would want the people who founded it to kind of seem like they knew what was going on. Um, but John is like, we were all confused. What is he talking about? And so they're talking among themselves, and Jesus gives this illustration. I'm about to die, he says, this news is filled with sorrow. That's not the end of the story. Uh, think of when a woman is pregnant, and it's time for labor. Um, and Jesus says, her hour has come. And he's used that over and over again. My hour has come. Before he starts heading to the cross, he says, my hour has not yet come. And so he doesn't do certain things. And then he starts saying, my hour has come. Um, we've already read it in these chapters. And, he's, if, and if you think about it, I haven't experienced labor. Um, but if we all have seen it or experienced it ourselves, um, whether it's TVs or in person or whatever it is, um, but imagine that pain and anguish, and you just did it, and you just went home, and there's no baby. It's like, why did I go through that? That was horrible. Um, that just seemed pointless. And Jesus is saying, like, what I'm telling you, me dying at the moment is going to seem like useless pain and anguish. But I want you to think of it like a woman giving birth. Her pain and anguish is not for nothing. And after the baby comes into the world... The sorrow and the pain and the anguish, she doesn't even remember it for the joy that she now has for bringing a human being into the world. And all the disciples are seeing the world hates Jesus and the world's going to hate, kill Jesus. And Jesus is leaving us. And this all sounds pretty bad. But Jesus is like, that's not the whole story. Your sorrow is going to turn into joy and no one can take that joy away. My death is going to look like defeat. But you're going to realize that it's actually victory because through it I've defeated sin, I've defeated Satan, I've defeated death. And then Jesus ends this passage with the verses we haven't read yet. So we'll read verses 25 through 33. John chapter 16. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. 
In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come, came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you not believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus says a lot of things that should be encouraging to us, that if we love Jesus, the Father himself loves us. And the next chapter we'll see, the Father loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. It's not like, you know, we get like a partial measure of God's love and Jesus kind of has the big measure. In the full capacity that God, that the Father loves his son, uh, that's the same way he loves us as his children. And as Jesus prepares to face the hate of the world head on, he knows his disciples are going to scatter and fear and leave him alone. But yet he says, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. And that's the promise that we need to remember is that when we face the hate of the world, the Father is with us and Jesus is with us. He sent the Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. And then in verse 33, he's instructed them about all these things that we've been covering in, so far in John 13 to 16 here, so that they'll have peace. He knows that hate's coming. He knows tribulation's coming. He knows they're going to face rejection and persecution and threats and hatred. But he says, take heart, which is, in other words, encourage. Uh, be encouraged. Take, be, have courage. Why? Guys, I've overcome the world, he says. And so as we think as we think about ourselves, we talked at the beginning about fear, fearing other people. And Jesus says everybody has a choice. When, when it comes time to deciding whether they're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's do you want to have the love of the world or do you want to have the love of Jesus? And that's the choice he, he gives to all of us. You can either be loved by me or you can be loved by the world. Which one do you want? Uh, and for us, when we think about who we have the love of, um, and that's not to say that you know we're we're perfect at always in the face of fear and hatred um, that we always do you know tell somebody about Jesus that we always push through we always have courage, but it's what's the theme what's the stream of your life is it towards wanting the love of the world or is it towards wanting the love of Jesus and that's and so you can ask yourself who who runs my life who determines your actions. Are your actions determined by what Jesus wants you to do, what Jesus wants you to say, and what Jesus wants for your life? Or are your actions determined by what other people think of you, by what other people do, what other people say to you, or could do to you? It's whose love do you want? And what's at stake if, we, if we're afraid, if we pull back from telling others about Jesus? Well, if we do not witness, the world wins, and Satan wins. Um, because if you think about... Uh, we. We talked about what are we afraid of losing. I think so often when we go into conversations um, about Jesus, or we start thinking about, it, we're like, "Oh, what could I lose in this?" And we think this is a win-lose situation. <coughs> Winning would be, "Oh, they're nice to me. They accept me. They become a Christian. They put their place in G- faith in Jesus." Losing would be, "They don't like me. They're not interested. You know, whatever it is." But what if we went into the situation believing we, Jesus has already won? It's not a, we can't lose, 
Um, Jesus says we have joy that can't be taken away. Jesus says, I want you to have peace. Jesus says, my love for you isn't determined by how these people respond to you. In fact, my love for you and your love for me is why they're responding to you this way. We often come into situations um, thinking, like, I could win or lose in this. And when we, you're all wondering what this is for, but... <laughs> and thorns and sun. Oh, jeez. Well, hopefully we can get there. Uh, so, so often we think about, like, in a win or lose situation, that Satan in the world, or whoever it is that is going to reject us, like, has bullets in their gun. Or the other thing is, the, Satan, all he has is lies. So, like, if I came in here, you can't see this, this is bigger. So, but if, if I had a, a thing that actually looked like a gun and I was actually hiding it, and I was like, hey, you know, give me your money, you'd be like, oh my gosh. Like, uh, you would be scared. But if I came to you like this and, like, give me your money, you'd be like, that's a Nerf gun, dude. And you don't even have darts. And so, not even an eye hazard. And so, and the thing Jesus tells us, he's like, I've overcome the world. I've overcome Satan. He's a defeated enemy. He, it's like a declawed cat. He can't scratch you. You know, it's like being afraid of Satan is like being afraid of somebody trying to steal your money when they have a Nerf gun with no darts in it. And we, we, if we live like this, like, oh my gosh, if I get in this situation, this person rejects me, or I get this hatred, or I lose these things, we're, we're still giving Satan power, even though he has nothing. He, all he has is the lies that I can do something to you. I can take something from you. I can take these things from you. And these really matter. You really want these, don't you? And Jesus can't take care of you. And we just have to be like, you know what? You don't have anything. You don't even have bullets for your Nerf gun, man. Like, you can't do anything to me. And so we need to approach the world, um, approach Satan as... He's a declawed cat. He's been defeated. He doesn't have anything he can do to us. And I'm, I'm using silly imagery. Um, Satan is very dangerous, but not because he has power. Um, he only has power if we believe him. Um, he's like a roaring lion, that First Peter 5 says, that he, he's dangerous because he has deception. But Jesus is saying, look, that's all he has. He, that, he doesn't have anything real. All he has is lies. All he has is fake danger for you. Um, it's real danger because I can take things from you if you really believe I have a gun. Um, but Jesus says he doesn't really have anything. I want you to take a moment to do um, we all have people in our lives that don't know Jesus. Maybe they're people you know well, maybe they're people you don't know well. But we all probably have between, I don't know, like 10 and 25 people that we interact on a regular basis, neighbors, family, friends, um, but take a moment and write, if you don't have a bulletin, I'll grab one for you. Take a moment and write down five of those names. I'm going to take one down and pass it around. <laughs> Wait, that's a song. I, I shouldn't be singing. <clears throat> so what are those fo top five names? That you'd be like, yeah, this is a person, maybe God's had them on your mind. You've been feeling for them, or maybe you're like, you know, I should give more time to them, or and writing those names down. <coughs> my hope is that you would start praying for them, start praying for opportunities, start praying Jesus would give you the words to say, convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, in another column, here's right. 
picture I have. So you've got your names. Another <coughs> fears. What are you afraid of losing if you tell them about Jesus? So you have your names. Another column writes your fears. What are you afraid of losing if you brought Jesus up with them? Could be job, could be friendship, could be openness, could be respect, could be comfort. you can call all those are what ifs. And if you live in what ifs, uh, you really can't live at all. What if this happens? What if they don't like me? What if they don't respect me? What if it's uncomfortable? What if they don't care? Um, those are all what ifs. Um, but what I want you to do, um, where should you write it? Right above there, uh, even, if, even if all these fears happened. Um, I'm going to put over here truths. I'm going to write four truths in this other column. So you have all these people, and then we have these fears. What if this happens? And I want you to change the what if into an even if that happens, even if they're uncomfortable, even if they rejected me, even if I lost my job, <coughs> even if I lost a friendship, even if they're less open with me. These truths come from this passage. Even if that happened, Jesus is alive. Jesus is with me. Jesus has won. So Jesus is alive. Jesus is with me. Jesus has won. Lastly, which is connected to the last two weeks, Jesus loves me. You could write, the Father loves me too. So it's connected here too. He says, not only I love you, but the Father too. So it's, we have these people that God's, you, God's placed you in these people's lives. And then we have all these fears. What if this happens? Well, even if that happens, Jesus is alive. Jesus is with me. Jesus is one. Jesus loves me. They can't take any of those things away. And those are the things that Jesus says. Those things are going to give us courage in the face um, of the hatred of the world that wants, uh, Satan wants, the last thing he wants is for you to tell somebody about Jesus. The last thing he wants is for somebody to be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. Because that means they're free from him. They're free from his lies. They're free from how he has them captive. As a final image, um, we don't do this alone. We're sent individually into spheres of influence and domains of our life. We do this as a community. We have Jesus as our king. Jesus who is alive. Jesus who is with us. Jesus who is one. Jesus who loves us. As a community, we do this together. And if you remember, what's the commandment that Jesus says, this is what I really want you to keep. This is the commandment that will tell the world you're my disciples. Remember what it is from John 13? Love one another. Love one another another like I've loved you. That's how the world will see you're my disciples. And so as a community, um, that's how people uh, see us. And actually, there's some authors who say like the the best proof, the best convincing proof that Jesus is real (coughs) is that there's this community of people that are loving each other in a way that is otherworldly, that is sacrificial and puts other people 
before them. And so we do this as a community because Jesus knows the only way we'll stand firm in a world that hates us is in connection with him. We have connection with him. We need each other. We need a loving community holding us up. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your presence with us. Thanks for sending the Spirit that we don't do this alone. Thanks for giving us important work to do in this world that Jesus didn't just do something and then head off and say, okay, hang out. But we've been given something important to do, um, to love each other like Jesus loved us and to tell others about that love that they see in us for one another, that that comes from someplace. It doesn't come from us, but it comes from your spirit in us. It's from Jesus' example for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.